If you will turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we are continuing in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning we are in chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15. The title of our sermon is Biting and Devouring, and our key words for worshipers and training are flesh, love, and serve. Now, there are a lot of ways that people talk about freedom or liberty without actually considering the logical outcomes of what they claim. I think of the absurdity, for example, of something being called postmodern architecture. Now, if you understand what postmodernism is, that's a completely illogical phrase. At the heart of what's called postmodern thinking, this philosophical idea, is, is that there are no fixed boundaries. Everyone is able to determine truth on their own. They're not being conformed to the standard norms of society. Now, on the exact opposite spectrum of all of that is architecture, something that's based entirely on standards and principles and set rules governed by codes and regulations. Ravi Zacharias tells a story. He says, I remember lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in the country, I was minutes away from beginning my lecture and my host was driving me past a new building called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. He said, this is America's first postmodern building. I was startled for a moment and I said, what is a postmodern building? And he said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, If life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he had pillars that had no purpose. He had stairways that went nowhere. He had a senseless building built and somebody had paid for it. I said, so his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? And he said, that is correct. So I asked him, did he do the same with the foundation? All of a sudden, there was silence. You see, we're going to encounter people who think this way from time to time. People who make audacious claims about the utter importance of absolute, unrestricted freedoms, giving no thought whatsoever to the the outcome of what they're saying. I doubt they want to live in a house that had a foundation designed by a postmodern free thinker who thought the standard norms of foundation building are offensive to his psyche and oppressive and restrictive because he's being held down by the man. I would only have to steal his wallet and smash the window of his car with a baseball bat to prove to him that he doesn't really think freedom comes without limitations. But this is where Christians sometimes get off track when we talk specifically about Christian liberty. Now, we've looked at this a few times in Galatians 5, but but Paul doesn't want to get away from this subject until he makes a few clarifying remarks about how we go about doing what we are free to do in Christ. 
Now, we've said on several occasions now, when the gospel of free grace is preached, the tendency of the human heart is to react in one of two ways, neither of which is the perfect balance that God communicates in his word. So we either take on this mentality that grace is the only factor in my life, therefore I get to do what I want, when I want, however I want, with whomever I want, and grace will cover all of my sins. We can become libertines in that regard. We can justify our licentiousness by calling it liberty in Christ. And when Paul started preaching the gospel, he, he encountered these kinds of responses. Because Paul would say things like, when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so people would respond with things like, well, if that's the case, then we should sin all the more so that grace may abound all the more. But Paul responds, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This kind of thinking, taking this kind of position isn't free grace, it's cheap grace. It's not liberty, it's unrestricted autonomy, which doesn't truly exist. Jude writes of ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Peter warns us not to use our freedom as a covering for evil. Another tendency that we have is to go to the opposite extreme, to embrace legalism or to speak only hypothetically about Christian liberty while never actually truly embracing it or allowing other Christians to walk in it without your judgment. The legalist hears the gospel of free grace and instantly says, wonderful. But now that I'm a Christian, I have a standard to maintain and I want to be sure that we keep on track. So while we're technically free to do certain things, those things can become idols and idols are going to get in my way of worshiping God rightly. So I need to avoid them altogether and help others see that they also need to avoid them I'm basically just as free to not do it all as I am to do it, so it's best that I not do it at all. Maybe you've talked with someone with this tendency. They'll say to you something like, why do you drink coffee? Well, because I like coffee. Well, does it make you feel better or different when you drink it because of the caffeine in it? Um, I guess maybe it might help me wake up or something, so I like coffee. Oh, well, you see, you are admitting that coffee is an idol to you, so you shouldn't drink it at all. I mean, I know you're free to do it, but I've never met anyone who drinks coffee because they absolutely love coffee or for any other reason because it helps them wake up and it probably helps them feel better. So it's an idol. It has taken control of you. I can't think of a good reason for you to drink coffee. Maybe you've had that kind of conversation. A way of imposing a law that God has not on someone else and perhaps on yourself. These are two extremes. 
And Paul gives us guards to these extremes in our text this morning. I think it's important we think of our own hearts and how we respond when we hear the gospel and when we think of what we are free to be and do and think in Christ. But all of us are prone to one of these things. Now, sometimes, depending on what the issue is, we might swing the pendulum to the other side. But all in all, we have a default, each of us, to either license or legalism, depending on the issue. But the flesh is attracted to either legalism or license. That's the issue. It's an attraction of the flesh by default. And we could probably divide the room down the middle and decide which side each of us falls on by default. But the problem is that each of them appeals to the flesh because each of them is a self-centered position. Neither one of them is right because neither one of them is appropriately applying the implications of the gospel. And as we get in our text this morning, we're going to see that the main factor in maintaining a proper balance here is love. Whether or not we are loving our neighbor, whether or not we are thinking more highly of others than ourselves will be the determining factor in whether or not we approach the issue of Christian liberty with wisdom and a desire to glorify God. So we're in Galatians 5, looking at verses 13 through 15. If you use the Blue ESV Bible and your seat back, the text is on page 975. And the first thing we see in our text in verse 13, the first part of verse 13, Paul teaches us that Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Christian liberty is not the freedom to do whatever you want, however you want. That's not freedom. In fact, it it fails on its own terms. What do I mean by that? Think about it on a philosophical level with me for a minute. If every person is free to do whatever their heart wants to do because nobody can say what's right or wrong or what's appropriate or what's not appropriate, the only thing it means is that you really cannot challenge anybody. You can't even challenge yourself. You can't say that's wrong because there's no basis upon which you call something wrong because everybody is free to do as they please, right? So your wallet, your house, your car, and your wife can all belong to me if I say so. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? G.K. Chesterton has a fascinating discussion in his book called Orthodoxy. And he says the person who wants to be this kind of rebel, where everyone is free to be what they want to be, how they want to be, and do what they want to do, this person he says, actually can't be a rebel at all. Here's what he writes. The fact that he doubts everything bars his way when he wants to denounce anything. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of time, but as a philosopher, that life is a waste of time. 
A scientist goes to a political meeting where he complains that we're treating native people as beasts. And then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that we are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionary, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own mind. In his book on politics, he attacks persons for trampling on morality. But in his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on persons. Therefore, the modern rebel has become useless for all revolt by rebelling against everything. He's lost his right to rebel against anything. There is a kind of thought that stops thought, and that is the only kind of thought that should be stopped. And he's right here. What is, what is he saying? He's simply saying, if you want your definition of freedom to be that you can do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, recognize that the only thing you're not free to do is to revolt and to be free. And so you're actually less than free. You're not free to be the kind of person you suppose you want to be. Because who's to say who's oppressed? Who's to say who's free? And this is something of what Paul is driving at with the Galatians. He's telling them, listen, this freedom that you have is not a license to do whatever you want. That's not freedom. In fact, that's the opposite of freedom because you become enslaved to your own ideological ideology. I hope that makes sense to you. And here's the deal. Your heart really does desire a whole lot of things. John Calvin said our hearts are like idle factories that continue to pump out new desires. The problem is those desires often contradict one another. So a a definition of freedom that says you can do whatever your heart desires, it breaks down immediately, doesn't it? You cannot simultaneously, for example, uh, desire to have a professional triathlete's body and eat all the ice cream and cake that you want. It doesn't work. I guess you can pretend like being like 30 pounds overweight is like a thing now and call it the dad bod. You can have your cake and eat it too then, I suppose. But you can't have these two competing ideologies working together. So you see, freedom can't be just doing whatever your heart desires because you have incompatible desires. And you're certainly not autonomous in your freedom because you may have desires that are impossible to fulfill. You may really, really want to fly independent of any assistance whatsoever from any foreign objects. And you can want it more than anything in the world. You can hope for it. You can wish for it. You can ask for it for Christmas. But as soon as you get on top of a building to jump off and start flying, the only thing you're free to do is fall to the ground. You cannot fly. I hope you're seeing this. Freedom is not a right to do whatever I desire Instead, it is the ability to do something I was never able to do before I was a Christian, and that is to do what I ought to do. I hope you get that. Freedom is not the license to do whatever I want. It is the ability to do what I ought. But what can happen 
is Christians can take this newfound freedom in Christ and use it as an opportunity for the flesh. And this is what Paul is warning the Galatians about. So the myth is that freedom is the freedom to just follow my heart. And we hear that in the world all the time, right? If you need to make a decision, just follow your heart. Or you can do whatever you want to do if you just set your heart to it and pursue it. But we know that's not true. There are things we simply cannot do. And so it's a, it's a myth to simply say we just need to follow the desires of our heart. True, real freedom is the ability to do what I ought to do because when I'm in Christ, I'm made able to do it. In other words, prior to our being regenerated and made new creations in Christ, all we could do is walk in sin. But having been made right with God in Christ, having been given a new heart, having the Holy Spirit dwell within us, we no longer have an obligation to sin, and we can actually obey what God commands. So in doing so, I'm, I'm now free most ultimately from sin and its penalty. So now I can do what I ought. That doesn't mean I'll have a sinless life. It doesn't mean perfection is attainable in this life. But it means that my freedom, rightly understood, puts me in a place where I can have actual communion with God because I can walk in step with what he has called me to be and to do. Now here's the deal. A lot of us don't really walk in freedom at all because we find ourselves continuously enslaved even though we are in Christ and under grace. We're enslaved because we're doing whatever we want instead of doing what we absolutely need. We're actually not living as freely as we can when we do whatever we want because we're not actually living for and in with what God has given us. Licentiousness is not freedom. It's further enslavement. So Christian freedom is never freedom to to go out and sin. It is wholly designed by God as a freedom from sin and all of its enslaving effects. Well, Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 to further show us how freedom should be defined. If it's not a freedom to do whatever we want to do, what is it? By what measure do we determine whether or not something is acceptable? He gives us some direction in our next point, which is that true Christian liberty functions within the boundaries of love. Look again at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's another way to say this. Do not use your freedom in such a way as to destroy love. And here's one of the main things that completely and totally sets Christianity apart from any other worldview that anyone can have. Think about this. In the non-Christian mind, freedom is something sort of like independence. However, love is not compatible with independence, is it? 
me explain. Look, if I, if I love my wife and my children, I'm not going to do just whatever I want, whenever I want, without making sure they're taken care of, without making sure that they have time with me, without making sure their schedules are compatible with mine. In fact, if you ever see a couple where the husband and wife live completely independent of one another, you can be fairly certain that there's no love. Love says, I'm hoping to be able to do this. Are there any problems with that? Love doesn't come and go as it pleases. So if Paul is saying liberty actually leads us to consider others more highly than ourselves, the secular person is saying in response, well, that's not freedom. Freedom is my ability to answer to no one. But here's what I want to convince us all of this morning. If your conception of freedom moves you out of love in order to be free according to your definition, then please get rid of your conception of freedom. If you define freedom in such a way that you're not able to love, then get rid of that definition and start over. Because you can't just give yourself to somebody and remain completely independent. That's not love. You have to make sure that person will support you in all that you want to do, and you'll support them in all that they're going to do. And maybe you're thinking, that's impossible. There's no such person as that. You might as well just forget the idea of love. I only want someone who I don't have to make sacrifices for. I won't have to make any sacrifices in my career. I won't have to make any sacrifices in my heart. I won't have to sacrifice any of my time. But that's a really, really naive conception about how our hearts are motivated. You don't have control over yourself. I know we think we do, especially as freedom-loving Americans, we believe that we have control over situations and ourselves. You don't. Everyone loves something. There is something or someone that you have given your heart to. So you're actually not free if you define freedom as autonomy or independence. And if you think you can, you can have a Lord or you can live independent of a Lord and you can't fall in love because you'll lose your independence, then guess what? You're a slave to independence. You've been crucified at the altar of selfishness. So the real question is, what do I love? Who do I love? And when you think, if I have blank, I will be happy, what do you use to fill in the blank? The reality of this life is that we cannot avoid the fact that each and every one of us has something that fills in that blank to complete the sentence. So if it's freedom or independence, none of us are free. And this is where the Christian understanding of freedom runs contrary to the world because Paul says, listen, freedom is not about feeling good in your flesh. Christian liberty is something that is worked out in love. That's why Paul says things like he says in 1 Corinthians, I can give away everything I have. I can even give my body to be burned, but if I have not love, I've given nothing. Nothing. I can give over all that I have, my very life. But if I do it without love, it's meaningless. 
Actions void of love are useless actions, and they're ultimately self-serving, which is not free because we're enslaved to our own flesh. So Christian liberty operates in the reality that Christ has freed us from the bondage to self-interest and selfishness that is characteristic of the natural heart. God has poured his love into our hearts. He has enabled us to rise above our own interests and seek the interests of others first. So when we say that Christian liberty operates within the boundaries of love, what we're saying is that God regulates our freedom by love. How do we avoid abusing liberty? Well, what is Paul doing with the law? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Liberty expresses itself through love. And love expresses itself by obeying the word of God. And isn't it interesting how the Bible exhorts us to love our neighbor? Love your neighbor how? As yourself. In other words, there's no question as to whether or not you love yourself. You don't love others more because you have higher self-esteem or self-love. That's precisely the reason why we don't love as much as we ought to. Because we're too busy loving ourselves. So the Bible never denies the fact that we love ourselves, but it teaches us to not let our love for ourselves outpace our love for our neighbor. You can see how it is that we have some boundaries here, hopefully, to keep us from abusing our liberties in either licentiousness or legalism. So what does that look like practically? It looks like understanding and applying all the details of what Jesus summarizes when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love your neighbor is what exactly? It is a summary of commandments 6 through 10. And so the Lord tells us the whole law is fulfilled in one commandment. And the measure of our love is God's moral law. Romans 13 and James 2 both teach us that the law is fulfilled in love and love is fulfilled in the law. Love expresses itself objectively when it is directed and guided by the law of God. So you see, sometimes we make Christian liberty this sort of quagmire that we we can't figure out, but it shouldn't be. It's not an unsolvable puzzle. You know what it looks like? It looks a whole lot like obeying God. And I know all of us really, I want this, I want to be able to just give myself a list of things I can't do and a list of things I can do. But apart from the things that are explicitly or implicitly given to us in the moral law of God, there are no lists. We don't live by lists. We live by grace and mercy and love. And that love and the desire for true grace, not cheap grace helps me to set my boundaries. Love drives us because love drives the law, and the law, rightly understood and applied, drives a thankful Christian who's seeking to love and obey God. Now, remember, this isn't the law driving our salvation. That's already been settled, right? We don't seek to obey God's law so that 
God will love us more or God will bless us in granting us some great favor or salvation. No, we look to God's law as a rule of life because we are walking with Christ and we want to honor God. And he has said, if you love me, you will do what I command. So the law prescribes love, but the law cannot produce it. The love that Christians have and display can only be born of the Holy Spirit of God, indwelling the heart of a believer. And when this is present in our hearts, we will be fulfilling the essential elements of God's law. Not perfectly, but walking faithfully in communion with God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So Christian freedom doesn't mean I'm not under the law, so I don't have to obey the law. So don't commit adultery and don't lie. Don't apply to me. But you know that's not true. When we say we're not under the law, we're saying we're not obligated to these things as a measure of feeling good about ourselves, feeling loved by God, or feeling worthy of the gospel. You know, I I spend a lot of time talking on the phone and writing emails and counseling with people, saying nothing more than this. You know, the goal here is not that you are to be perfect. That's not the goal. And I'm happy to do that because we all need that reminder. But 90% of ministry conversations are just that. I want to remind you, your goal is not to be perfect. You'll come to me with struggling marriage or some kind of sin struggle or a lack of joy in Christ, and in the end, the issue is what? Your standard is different than the standard that God has set in his word. Your standard is probably a fruitless attempt at perfection because you feel empowered by your works righteousness as though you can do something on your own ability about your own problems. So maybe you think, we just need to make a few tweaks in our marriage, or we just need to change a few habits in our sins so that can be taken care of, but then you still feel burdened and like nothing has really worked. Why? Because in that moment, you don't believe that grace is sufficient. And so instead of realizing, I can't do this on my own, you give it a go anyway. So what's the real issue? I'm trying to do it all on my own power, and I've become a legalist. Or I've just given up, and I've decided that whatever I want to do is fine because I can't fix it on my own. Both of those are void of love. So no wonder our relationships flounder. Love says, I can't do this on my own. I don't desire to do it on my own. I need Christ. And only Christ can fix our situation. And it is in Christ where I find that the greatest goal that I can pursue is to think of others more highly than myself. So that in my relationships, I'm not seeking to do what's best for myself in my own mind, but I'm seeking to outdo others in loving them.
I hope you're seeing this. Because what happens when we don't understand and apply this is that our liberty is, an un, is unchecked. And so we either have a worldly perspective or we embrace a spirit of legalism. And here's what happens when we go down that road. We see it in our final point in our text this morning from verse 15. If you turn to legalism or if you make grace an excuse for license, you will bite, devour, and consume others. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If I don't love you, I'm going to either seek to hold you under a yoke of slavery in legalism and judge you by a standard of my own making that you will never live up to, or I'm going to go about doing whatever I want to do without giving any thought to you whatsoever. I will bout, I, bout, I will bite, <laughs> I will devour, and in time, I will consume you. That's not love. But it is the end result of legalism. And it is the end result of licentiousness. It's interesting, these are two opposite extremes, but both of them end up in the exact same place. How so? Because of what we said earlier. They're both self-serving. Each of them suits the desires of our flesh without giving consideration to anybody else. So it's a denial of what God commands. It's a denial of love. And when the church is void of love, it is constantly unsettled and it leads to great division. When I graduated from seminary, the commencement speaker was Dr. Steve Brown. He's got this really deep, booming voice. You may have heard him on the radio before. He spent his life in ministry in the local church and various seminaries. And he said something that at the time was humorous, but something a lot of people cannot understand. But it really has caused me to think a lot about what goes on in churches and why it happens. He's talking, remember, to a room full of men who are either just about to go into their first pastorate or they've only been in ministry for a little while. And he said this, he said, 10% of the people you will encounter in your church will be the meanest nastiest human beings you will ever meet in your whole entire life. Now, isn't that a little bit shocking? Thank you, Dr. Brown, for your great encouragement as I launch off into ministry. And it's shocking because we all know that shouldn't be the case, and we all know that isn't what Jesus wants from his church or any of us want from our church. But here's the reality. If we are not consciously seeking to love one another and to think of others more highly than ourselves, then we will see each other not as brothers and sisters in Christ to live and die for. No, we'll see each other as those that we will bite and we will devour and eventually we will consume and we will be the meanest, nastiest people we know. Self-righteousness and self-gratification may seem like two opposite extremes, but the ends are the same, and it's very ugly. It's a tragic alternative to love. 
especially over the last six years, the Lord has really been kind to pour out his spirit of love on his people here at Ephesus Church. My prayer is we'd abound all the more in love for one another and for all men. How can that happen? What's well, interesting, the language Paul uses, isn't it? Biting, devouring, consuming. It's what wild animals do when they are starving, not when they are filled. So here's what we need. We need to be filled with God. Because when we are not, we become hungry. And eventually our closest allies eventually look more like a sweet-tasting meal than our brother or our sister. God has called us to freedom. And when we are in Christ, we are free indeed. But that freedom, when rightly understood and rightly applied, overflows into love for God and love for our neighbors. We're no longer under a yoke of slavery. That is empty and fruitless and only results in biting and devouring one another. In Jesus Christ, God offers us forgiveness daily, guidance and help. And we have every reason to believe that if we continue in love for one another, seeking to honor each other and thinking of one another more highly than ourselves, then we have a great future as a local church, greater than anything we could hope for or imagine. That is the kind of church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. That is the kind of church that God uses to change lives and to move mountains. That is the kind of church that can be small, but can do great, amazing, and mighty things. That is the kind of church I want to be a part of. And you know what? All of it is completely and totally free. Purchased by the death of Jesus, received by faith alone. We can love because we've been loved. And in being loved, we are set free. And we're set free because we are in Christ. And we are in Christ so that we are able to have confidence in him and all that he gives to us. So we don't need to live up to an unattainable standard and we don't need to find loopholes and shortcuts to what God commands so that we can live in licentiousness. If we live in Christ, we will be filled with love and he will give us more blessing and more joy than any of us knows what to do with. Brothers and sisters, we forever need more of Christ and less of us. And when we seek first the kingdom of God and we live together in sacrificial love for one another, we won't bite and devour and consume one another. We will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we will love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can be an unstoppable force in turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. That's what love does. That's when we are free. Free indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for our freedom in Christ. That we are not enslaved, that we are not bound, that we are not continuing to be held by our flesh, by our sin, by Satan, by the world.
but that we are free to live in Christ, for Christ, and for our neighbor. I pray, God, that you would help us to love one another because we have been loved. That we would be a people who are able to think more highly of others than we do ourselves. That our greatest desire would be to see the flourishing of other people's lives before our own. That we would give of ourselves beyond what even our heart desires for the good of others, for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. I pray, God, that you would help us to not fall into the pit of license We simply do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. We know that's not freedom. We're free to do what we ought, and we want to do what we ought. We also want to be free from the enslaving yoke of legalism. Help us to know and understand your word and to apply it rightly without imposing on ourselves or others a standard that is not your own. May we walk in perfect harmony and balance with what you command as we seek to live a Christian life that honors and glorifies you and shows the world that love among your people is the greatest bond that there is. And by our love for one another, we pray, O God, that you would use us to fulfill what you have called us to be and do, and that for it you would receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise that you are surely worthy of. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.